Wait. You don't sound autistic. Well, uh, what does an autistic person Wait. sound like? You're autistic? Yeah, I'm telling you that. You don't even look autistic. But, but we're talking about... Yeah, but, but I don't buy it. But I, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and anxiety and depression. You don't sound autistic. And we're back. And Rochelle, I think, are you done taking care of Declan in the other room? <laughs> For a moment. For, um, from a couple weeks ago. Um, welcome back to You Don't Sound Autistic. I'm Blake. And I'm Rochelle. And I'm autistic. And I'm not. And today we're going to be talking mostly about our son's most recent official autism diagnosis. And he was diagnosed with autism level three. So for those of you that don't know, that's the level of autism that requires the most care. So we're going to go delve into that. I, just as an example, I'm diagnosed with autism level one. So that's the high functioning autism. Rochelle, if you want to, I don't know if you want to start as far as how the evaluation went itself. And then we can kind of delve into what the results were. So we had some basis of reference because of, you know, how we went through your evaluation where we knew there was going to be a series of questions um, where we're being interviewed, much like I was interviewed on your behalf. Um, you and I were interviewed on right. his behalf. Uh, we knew that because uh, it's a pediatric evaluation, there would be more childlike things in the room. So, you know, I, I did expect to come in and see a table with toys and, and we did. Right. I didn't get any toys when, you when did I was not. evaluated. I was pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty, ups, pretty bummed out about that. It's true. Um, and Declan went right to it. You know, he, he was a little, uh, thrown off cause it's a new environment and I think that's to be expected. But, um, he spent two hours with the doctor and basically they watched him interact with the toys and interact with us while they asked us questions. And, you know, it was a really stressful evaluation actually. And, and I thought that I, I almost felt like it was kind of a pressure cooker situation because the worse his behavior got, the harder it was for me to answer questions. And I felt really torn between the two. And I, I remember afterwards going, oh, I don't know if I answered that question completely. I can't remember. He distracted me. Um, but the things that they saw in him during that time are, are uh, the other side of the evaluation, you know, to validate or kind of fill in the pieces from the question and answer process for us. You know, so like they watched his body language or they watched how he interacted with us they watched like she said something I've never really noticed before is the body tensing right yeah he does that when he gets frustrated like I knew to be watching for stemming you know and he's not big on the re the repetitive body behavior but he does kind of you know pull his ears from front to back and right. when I and then I, his biggest clue when I know he's overwhelmed is is he kind of just takes his hands and runs them up his chest you know, it's yeah. just a weird little thing he does. And he's like, ah, um, but the body tensing was a new thing for me. So when she pointed that out, I was like, oh, yeah, he does that. Yeah. I mean, for instance, we had a, um, a pretty tumultuous afternoon yesterday, the two of us, and he got in my face and screamed and I ended up yelling at him. It would, no one had a good time. I felt terrible. He felt terrible. And he, he screamed with all his might and you could see his little body tensing up all because, you know, we were we were basically fighting about what was going to be for lunch and he wasn't going to eat the food that I made and he just wanted a bottle and we're trying to kind of phase bottles out. But that is his comfort zone. So it's kind of difficult because it does make him feel more comfortable, you know, because he kind of uses that as a stemming 
thing. He can, yeah. I think the difficulty is when he doesn't, like, because he's still not, I don't know how to say, he's not nonverbal. Like, he never stops talking. He's just not intelligible. Like, you can't comprehend. Right. We don't know. He doesn't speak English. We said this d- yeah, before. He speaks. Declanese. T- or Declish. Declish. So, we don't know what it is. So, you don't know if he's just, like, if his stomach is upset and food will make it worse and he's literally just hungry and needs something. And so, it's not about the bottle. It's about the milk. You know, the problem is, is the, you know, the doctor said, oh, you got to, you got to have more of a showdown with him and show him who's boss. And I'm like, you know, but (laughs) his basic needs still need to be met. And I don't want him going hungry just because someone thinks that they're not being, I don't know. I have some big overall concerns with the way this evaluation went. And I think the underlying goals of it all, I, I feel like while the evaluation was accurate about identifying where his struggles are and where his pitfalls are and where he does lack capacity. I feel like it's all being judged on his ability to be compliant or obedient to someone else's will. But I think it's also though that most they're basing it also on what most children would be doing at his age and he does not do those things. So I think think it may be true but i think that that's what i gleaned more for the from the evaluation was that you know he's not doing what the average kid would be doing at this particular age and therefore he's behind um in that in those in those social capacities that he just doesn't quite have yet and it seems like he'll get there and, and as we have talked about off off the air if you will um that the evaluation of him being a level three seemed it was more than I was expecting. I I really thought that he was high functioning autistic and that that would have shown in the evaluation. But because he's been diagnosed as level three, that means he will get a lot more support than he would because I mean, for me as an adult, there's no support uh, really out there Um, other than, other than uh, going to regular therapy and some of the medication for, for mood, which can be helpful, but some of that's also with ADHD uh, dual diagnosis there. Well, so let's go into that. So what it says is level three requ- requiring very substantial support, including the core vulnerabilities and inconsistent skills in social communication and interaction and the presence of restricted repetitive patterns of behavior. So let's unpack that because when you talk about core vulnerabilities I don't really understand what they mean by that. I understand inconsistent skills in social communication and interaction. That is not, I mean, that's clear. But what is core vulnerabilities supposed to mean? So what we're looking at are um, letters of medical necessity for several different programs that Declan should be involved in, one of them being ABA, which uh, stands for Applied Behavior Analysis, I learned. <laughs> I agree he has inconsistent communication skills. Um, one of the things that I was grateful for in this report was the, uh, we had him evaluated by Babies Can't Wait, which is Georgia's early intervention program, which I am incredibly thankful for. And I could just hug my coordinator and the pediatrician that got us in the program because because of Babies Can't Wait, Declan has been receiving occupational and speech therapy prior to this diagnosis um, since January. Right. And more importantly, they evaluated him in December. And they're the only ones 
who have documented an evaluation at this point because it took so long to get an official evaluation from any developmental pediatrician because there's just there's such high demand and such a long wait list. So this is the first time I saw the results in of that December evaluation and I was kind of really shocked to see it. Previous evaluations for speech and language in December of 2020. This I I knew the scores just kind of off the top of my head, they told me that the average range was 85 to 115. I had no idea what that meant. And I knew his scores were under that, but I didn't know the age equivalent. So they they presented it all to us in this report. Okay. His auditory, so let's hear it. Com- <laughs> his auditory comprehension in December, so what is that, seven months ago, was the age equivalent of a seven-month-old. Right. His expressive communication um, was the age equivalent of a one-year-old. At December, um, he was 25 months old for comparison. So they scored his total language as a um, net nine-month-old, as a 25-month-old. So I'm struggling because when I originally identified that he needed support I said speech and language was my primary concern and clearly by these test results I mean he's functioning at a nine-month level as a 25-month-old child and yet we didn't start with speech no because we started with occupational therapy I don't understand why we didn't have both so a lot of times in early intervention programs, as wonderful as they are in getting early intervention, they're also state funded. So there are some rules and the rules are that you can only have one dominant therapy at a time. And then the second therapy is considered every other week. So one of the other things that they didn't include in this was his test scores for um, his sensory issues. In fact, it was this process that illuminated his sensory processing disorder. So through the the evaluation, Declan could not focus. He would not stop running around. It was kind of like an energizer bunny, but more so than what a normal child would. And they couldn't get him to interact with them in order to even complete the exam. So they said, yes, speech is a huge deficit, but no speech therapy is going to be helpful if we can't get him to focus. So he needs to see an occupational therapist who focuses on sensory processing and so a way to kind of help his system downregulate. So that's what his system can't do. His system cannot downregulate. It stays kind of really amped up. And so therefore his focus stays amped up. And then he wouldn't be able to concentrate on speech. You do a lot of talking on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What? No, I'm just saying. I need I need room to jump in and interject every once in a while. And then now I regret doing that. Continue. It's a difficult thing because his test scores for speech were obviously very low, but if he can't focus, then speech isn't going to do it any good, even if he was getting it weekly. I know. I mean, but, you know, was having spoken to this doctor, the my understanding is that he needs to have both therapies. In fact, more than just those two. Um, occupational therapy, speech therapy, the, what was it? The ABA, ABA the, um, what is it again? Applied behavior Applied behavioral analysis. analysis. There's the struggle. The only reason why he's not an ABA already is because it requires an official diagnosis and that right. letter of medical necessity. So and even he's supposed though, to also be in a specialized preschool coming up here. Yeah, he will. Yes. 
And which, what was wasn't there something else? There was like a a specialist. There's a special coordinator special from the coordinator. Babies Can't Wait program, right. and I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know in December when they evaluated him, they also said he needed a special coordinator. But then again, it goes back to his sensory processing disorder was at such a peak of I don't even know not over it was under functioning over functioning I don't know how to say it like he couldn't his sensory needs were so dramatic that no other therapy could be impactful right gotcha right okay so I mean this is just where we are but I'm just saying that now that he does have the official diagnosis then you know now we can move forward and he should be getting more care um on a, on a regular basis instead of the kind of half-assed effort that it seems like we were getting before, which at least it was something. Right. But we know that he needs a lot more help to get him up to par, up to speed, whatever you want to call it, with um, with his speech, you know, because that's, that's one of the more noticeable things because it's, you know what I mean? Like it just ends up being one of those, um, one of those aspects of his being that yeah, it's, you it's see challenging. is very noticeable and 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 adds to a lot of his frustrations mm-hmm. and our frustrations and so i think on both sides of it you know you're frustrated i'm frustrated he's frustrated and then on top of that like we want to we're trying to be helpful and not necessarily um trying to rag on him for not talking um but yeah, it's, it's, it's a just challenge how quickly he goes to whining you know i mean and um temple i was watching a video from temple grandin two days ago and she was talking about what happens when you have nonverbal kids and, and how sometimes you just have to bring out pictures and let them, you know, point at pictures so at least you can get their basic needs met because she says, you know, if you can't get your basic needs communicated, then the whole world devolves and she's right. And, you know, she kind of picked apart to some degree even sign language because it takes a community to know sign language for that to be effective. Now, I think between, you know, our small circle, that's fine. But the that what she mentioned there is that, you know, you teach it at home and then he goes to use it with anyone else and no one else knows it. And so now he's back to square one. Now he doesn't, he has a failed, you know, way of communicating that isn't going to serve him in all of his areas. And um, I think the biggest thing is just to help him gain the confidence to keep trying because his doctor was quick to point out that he just starts whining and oh my gosh, that's where I start to lose it. It's like the, <laughs> we've just been doing this for so long and then he just whines but the only time I really feel like he's trying is when he's rewarded like on his for his effort. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's kind of like this idea of when he when he does talk and he does say things that we're paying attention and he's getting the recognition he needs right then and there. It's like that instant feedback. And honestly, because so much of it is, is babbling and jargoning, you really have to like stop what you're doing and tune into him because you, you'll miss the words he's actually saying. And then he doesn't get the the feedback that he's on the right track. So he goes back to babbling and jargoning. Have you noticed? I, I think so. Yeah. It's happening a lot lately. Like he'll put okay. out new words and like he said, eggs and cheese today. Those he's never said those words before. Right. He said when he, he said something else today that pizza. I heard. Pizza. That was the other one. Pizza. Yeah. And he, and then did you hear piece of pizza? I did not hear that. Are you sure he didn't just say pizza pizza? Well, that's what it kind of. But it was a distinct piece of pizza. Like it was a little bit different, and you have to really be listening. But that's my point. Like, he made that distinction. That's pretty good. 
he yes there was an audible distinction although it was slight it was there i mean anyone can uh mess those two up regardless of age but for sure i i think so getting this evaluation back i mean i I have a lot of mixed feelings about it one i this is what i expected to receive i didn't expect level three but i expected an autism diagnosis now i say that but i have had declan evaluated um not officially, of course, but by other friends and family that are in the medical profession who work with autistic children on a regular basis. And they've straight up said to me, uh, Rochelle, he's not autistic because he has the ability to to interact with you and give hugs and be really warm and have all this eye contact and look at him pulling me up the stairs and and look at him doing this and, and he'll cheer in social situations. And even his teacher is telling me, oh, I don't think that he's autistic at all. Like you should see him in this environment. And I'm going, it's almost whiplash, you know, the situations where his autism shows up versus the situations where it's it's, it's hidden. Right. Well, that's what they call it masking. That's my point. And so the reason why our entire podcast is called You Don't Sound Autistic is because <laughs> we're facing this on a pretty regular basis. And I talk to and work with a lot of parents who are dealing with the exact same issues. Right. Well, I think it comes as a, a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, cause think of it, our, like I was thinking about it the other day, like our basis for comparison is it would be other kids that were around. And for us, like for me, at least I'm not, I, I'm not a, the only other kid that I can think of that I've ever been around was my niece. You know what I mean? when she was little and that was a while ago, like 20 years ago when she was, you know, over 20 years ago uh, when she was his age. And um, so it's hard to think back to, to, to compare and, and all kids are going to develop in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you wouldn't, my point is that if, if doctors and things weren't saying all this, that's why to me, him being autistic was a complete surprise and came out of left field because I was like, to me, he's just a normal kid because he's the only kid I know. So he doesn't seem whatever, you know, what is, whatever, whatever, what does that even mean? You know, like seem like autistic or act autistic, especially at such a young age, you don't necessarily pick up on things because so many things look like just being a regular kid. Right. Um, Well, well, I have theories about that too. (laughs) Okay. Because I believe that our theory of what a regular kid is, is completely uninformed i think it is the tragic result of 30 years of not identifying neurodiversity and then grouping it all together and that whole generation was just considered normal even though half of the development was on track and half of the development had its own timeline and yet everyone was just told oh kids develop in their own timeline and it wasn't until everyone got older and experienced some sort of massive regression or failure to move forward in their life that then this, the families and the doctors were like, oh, well, you know, actually, when we look at this further, there's autism here. And you're going, yeah, but why didn't you notice it as a kid? So my point is, I don't think that our idea as a culture over the last 30 years of normal, air quotes, was even uh, anywhere near correct because we didn't know what to look for in children to identify the differences back then. It was just all blanketly labeled as normal. So there's incorrect reference points in 
most of the adults right now. And that's what we're struggling with is that it doesn't match because we just labeled it all the same. You see what I'm... Well, I mean, yeah, to a degree, I think I understand. But there's another side of it too where you look at someone like my uncle Bob who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and if you talk to any professional, you know, like we talked to Mm -hmm. my doctor and explained his situation and she said that he sounds autistic. He doesn't sound like he's schizophrenic at all. He sounds like he's more of like a a level two autistic where he, because he speaks, he can communicate, but he does need help. He can't, um, like especially his age, he's in his 70s now. He wouldn't be able to live by himself and take care of himself. He's too... Uh, lazy <laughs> <laughs> well at this point yeah because he didn't have any support to teach him the skills but he does have the repetitive you know the repetitive uh, body movements um, right he has communication delays he has deficits in maintaining relationships he has the social emotional you know he checks those boxes of the diagnostics but but back then 70 years ago I mean we talk we're, we're <laughs> that, that's what I'm, I'm just I'm just giving an example as far as you know, when things are overlooked, it's like, okay, you're different. So you're this thing now, as opposed to now where we have so many different specific, uh, criteria, I was going to say, yeah, criteria for, for a diagnosis. And there's so many different types of, there's so many, there's so many different things that you can technically be, uh, on the scale of neurodiversity. Right. And, and a lot of the times those things are combined, you know, like being autistic and having anxiety are not uncommon. Be having ADHD and autism, um, is becoming more common. Not just more common, like 76% more common. And in wait, some, wait, hold on. What does that mean? 76%. So there was a study I read recently where they took 126, um, people with an autism diagnosis and they ranged, ranged in age from like 26 to 40 and then they tested them for ADHD to see if they also met the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And 76% of them did. Okay. At first, I thought you were trying to tell me that 76% of people were autistic. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sorry. I just, my brain. You're attacked. just like 77, 76%. I was leading like, into my uh, study. I'm excited about this study. But here's right. the biggest part of the number. 76%, of course, were undiagnosed with ADHD. But that's only in a... It, in a focus a group of 126 people yes studies are done with all different sizes of um, participants but here's the most important part 41 percent of those people were not even receiving treatment for their autism so you're talking about 40 percent of people who have both diagnosis and zero support diagnoses yes sorry it's okay i can't help myself (laughs) it's all right so that's a that's an alarming number. That's 41% who knew they were autistic, not getting any help, but didn't know they also had ADHD and really do need help. You know, now you have this it, it's Well, right, because you can't really treat autism with medication. Right. There are some things that you can take, you know, like I talked about how you can take uh mood altering medications which which sounds funny. It just it kind of just, I feel, I feel like if more than anything, it just like flattens you out. It doesn't necessarily, um, it, it keeps the lows from going too low and the highs from going too high. So it kind of like mellows you out, but it's not um, antidepressants or anything like that. So it's not quite as severe as well, it could so, be. But it depends because I know some autistic um, 
I was just talking about my own personal stuff. Sure. And that's because you have, well, you have both anxiety and depression. So, um, I do know that there are, as I'm working with clients and parents, um, there are many who have said that until they realized that their child was also depressed or have, um, is also battling anxiety, anxiety and actually got on antidepressants, their child couldn't actually communicate with them. I mean, the stories I'm hearing are just kind of blowing my mind and these things that I, I, in my research, I'm coming across going, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, anxiety and depression are also neurodiversity. I personally believe it was the beginning of neurodiversity from an evolutionary standpoint, probably happened maybe 100, 120 years ago, um, pretty blanketly across the community. And you don't think there were autistic people more than 120 years ago? I think it was far fewer than it is now. I think see, that's the thing I always wonder, right? Because if you say, say we, we, you know, we, it, it's like all of a sudden all these people are autistic or is it just that now they know about it and now we're finding out who is because it's like, oh, you fit the criteria for this thing that we made up. Well, so not that's that, fair. Not that they're making it up, but you know what I mean? Because obviously it's a real thing. But what I mean by saying making up is that you you t- you you tick all these boxes and and you call it a certain thing, you know, because it's real it's relatively arbitrary the the naming conventions for something, right? So I think what's happening is that the reason why we're seeing so much more of it is because it's about people's ability to get through school, even the way this evaluation is written and leveling him as level three. I think is done with the undercurrent of assessing his ability to get through school, get through an environment where he's not in control and he has to follow directions and he has to be compliant and obedient, you know, seven hours a day for the next however many years of his educational career. And he doesn't have the ability to do that. I think that's actually what they're measuring it by. And so it's the school system and the school age years that has uncovered this massive amount of, of autism, I don't believe it was this prevalent even 30 or 40 years ago um, because the school system would have caught it. This is what's happening. The school system caught it now and now the com- the entire community and the entire world is changing to, to accommodate it. Yeah, but I mean, if that was true, I mean, I went undiagnosed and I'm, I have autism. So, you yeah, know, the school system for me, the way that it showed up was that I wasn't applying because the tech, you know, technically i'm pretty smart and you are um so i wasn't necessarily applying myself and certain things i just don't understand like math to me never made sense and it's not that i didn't like get it um it's it's just i didn't understand why it was going to be an important thing when you know i'm like we have calculators and there are people smarter than me well let those people be the math people let me learn what i want to learn right but, but see, part of that could also be the adhd thing too so but, it's kind of hard but, but, give me a minute <laughs> Give me a second. Jesus. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> now she looks pissed. You, you weren't going to need a calculator. I wasn't going to. No, I mean, and you know, because that's one of the things that teachers used to say. They're like, do you think you're just going to be walking around with a calculator? And as I sit here with my cell phone, I say, yes. <laughs> I do not need to know how to do right. complex math. And I mean, I've done it. Like, I, you know, I, I took math when I was in school. But um it it just it it's just an example of something that um i'm just going off on a small tangent where i never quite understood those types of things like forcing people to learn certain things that's one of the reasons you know like a lot of people are 
trying to push trade schools now uh-huh. uh, because you learn that trade and you don't necessarily need to be stuck doing all these different things. But the problem with that, and I think the reason that they do force you to do things like math in school, which I guess it is good. I'm kind of contradicting myself now is that um, it gives you a, a, a foundation in all these different areas. And then you might end up doing something that you didn't know that you wanted to do or liked because you are learning something right, but that you wouldn't have otherwise learned. What, what? No. I mean, just because I'm not neurodiverse doesn't mean I'm going to remember my stuff forever either. <laughs> I don't get to sleep. No, I know, so. but I'm just, I'm just. I, I know. So let me, I'm like missed four different points in there. What? Okay. You missed, I didn't have any points. No, you have great points. I would like to comment on those oh, points. Go for it. So go. You have the ability to do math. And one of the things that's really common with neurodiversity is that you do something that's called intuitive math. What kills you is when an, when an old fashioned teacher says, show me your work. Oh yeah, and then you have to show your work, and your brain doesn't work that way. So my point, and I think you I actually just, just know the answer, <laughs> right? You just know the answer because you have the ability. And I have a brother that's like, oh my gosh, I could throw the most complicated math at him, and he could just be like, yeah, that's four hundred and seventy-two, and I'm like, oh, I don't even know how you did that. But that's an ability and a skill that has surpassed how they teach core curriculum in school. So what I'm saying is, I believe neurodiversity is an evolutionary step up from neurotypical. I don't believe neurotypical is better, actually. But the school system is very much dependent on teaching neurotypical kids so that they don't have to change. Now, they're changing all the time, but they're not changing in order to meet the needs of an evolutionary brain. So the problem is they're trying to fit a neurodiverse mind into a neurotypical curriculum now right that's where i believe the problem is and that's why i know for a fact that neurodiversity is increasing in the numbers year by year and wasn't as prevalent 30 40 years ago because the school system would have had a conniption 30 40 years ago like they are now but that's what i'm saying i don't that i don't understand because then all these people that are getting diagnosed later in life like i said like like myself why weren't we causing this uh, interruption that you're talking Earlier. about. Well, I think that yeah. we were, but to a degree, it was just it just showed up in 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 different ways. Like it looked like we were lazy. Yep. It looked like we just you know when and that was my point earlier is that it's it doesn't have anything to do with being lazy. It has to do with interest. But right. um, again, some of that can be the ADHD thing. But if you're saying seventy something percent of people of those hundred and twenty or whatever were mm-hmm. tested and um, were on the spectrum and had ADHD, then it is, it should be more or less um, indicative of the fact that, you know, people when in my age group would have had those, you know, we would have, we had those issues and we took the tests and we had the same classes as all the neurotypical kids did. Right. Um, and sometimes you shine and sometimes you don't like on testing and stuff. Like I always, I always personally did really well mm-hmm. um, because those types of things, I don't know. I, I always found like, they, they, I don't know. The, so let the, me, let I me, always thought they were easy. Let me get in there. What I believe, and this is my personal belief based on my now years of research in the medical and wellness and now everything in neurodiversity. I believe that if you back up the timeline through the generations, we will see this this signal, this vibration, this this. You know, you can see where neurodiversity is starting, 
but in the older generations, it's not as big of a signal. So basically what they're starting to prove, and they will in the next 10 or so years, I believe, they are going to prove that neurodiversity is directly linked to the gene expression, which is a fancy way of saying... Sounds like a fart. Right. Well, it's, gene a, fan- expression. it's a fancy way of saying <laughs> that um, all the chemicals we've introduced into the world now and all the you know antibiotics and the things we've done to our body actually is damaging our genes and they're going to show which genes are damaged um, that link back to neurodiversity and they'll probably categorize it by adhd and autism and that's why genetic testing is now being required with when it with every official diagnosis but my point is this if you take someone who's on the spectrum who's in their 60s or and adhd and you can find threads of behavior that straight up match but it's faint. And then you come down to the next generation and then it's a little bit stronger. And then you come down to the next generation and it's even bigger. So like yours, your ADHD didn't even show up until your 30s. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. It it showed up um, when I was in school. I remember. because I'm sorry, I said the wrong word. Your autism did not show up until your 30s. Your ADHD was more prevalent. And it's, and it, we, I'm we pretty fa- sure I was pretty, I was pretty autistic as a kid too. Well, you might have been, but it wasn't as strong. Your eight, even as an adult. Now go back to No, you. they just said I was shy and weird. That's what, okay, but that's what I'm saying. But Growing you, up, that's... But you don't have the challenges that he did. But I'm, but I'm, I'm also on you know, technically a different level on the spectrum. So, well, but and, and was a master at masking and trying to blend in. Yes. And okay. My point is that you were able to manage for the most part, your neurodiversity, even your anxiety through your physical exercise routine, your diet, through some of the things that you were doing And even though things weren't right and you were struggling and there's no doubt, I mean, we can go back to all your teacher comments on your report cards. We've seen it in your baby books where they've all been critical of the fact that you talk too much and that you're not applying yourself and that, you know, all these things that you look back with a different lens and go, well, that's ADHD. You just didn't recognize it, teacher. You're correct. I think it was always there, but it didn't become such a breakdown in life until your 30s. Well, yeah, because now I'm not exercising every day. Like when you're a little kid, you're outside, you're running, you're playing in the park, you're riding your bike, you're swimming. Like, like well, at least I was lucky enough to have a swimming pool, you know, running around in the yard, playing in the orange groves that we had, like all that stuff. That's all we did was play and play and play. I and now don't... I get to be an adult and I'm like not running around playing games and going outside all day, every day. I don't have any friends. Okay, well, I'll... <laughs> All of that may be true, although I do think you have friends. No, I mean, but they're all far away. I mean, that's okay. So, but my point is that we're talking about genetics and genetics are heavily influenced, not just by what your parents gave you when you were born, but also what you do with them throughout your lifetime. Um, The study of epigenetics right now is a really big thing that that where they're proving that the food that you eat and the supplements that you take or the things, you know, whether you're 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 activating your system through different you know nutritional strategies these all have a direct impact on your genes right now so yes your lifestyle changed but your genes also and the doctor told us this during your evaluation your genes have less capacity because your lifestyle is not I think my genes have more capacity now <laughs> okay those genes I've been putting on some weight <laughs> 
we're getting off track. My point okay. is that your your genetic makeup right now it's influenced by the things that you're doing in daily in life. So because your lifestyle changed, your genetic capacity diminished, and your autism and ADHD became very overwhelmingly present. Whereas when you were younger, not only were you younger and you were doing the lifestyle things to 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 kind of manage it intuitively, you know, your genetic capacity was greater. But you also aged to a point where it took your 30s and changing your lifestyle to really make it present and obvious that there were big things wrong. He's not past three yet. And he's had four different doctors tell me, your son's autistic. Like, you have to see that even though our ability to recognize it has improved, the gravity of the or the severity of the symptoms is also more dramatic in each generation that comes i think there's a direct link it's both i concur (laughs) so i know it's a long way of saying the same thing but at the same time this is really important because we're not the only ones facing this challenge i believe like we said in our earlier podcast you know our son has received this diagnosis and it's a pretty alarming diagnosis because he's not even three and they've basically prescribed for him and somehow we're supposed to work full-time jobs around this but he needs 10 to 40 hours a week of behavioral therapy and a specialized preschool with an hour of occupational therapy and two hours of speech every single week like that's that's a full-time job for a three-year-old yeah for sure just to get all this personalized care and I absolutely agree that he needs it um, I was appreciative when the doctor reframed it and said, well, okay, his ideal schedule would be 50% specialized preschool, 50% ABA, you know, and then sprinkle in those therapies in between. I'm like, okay, that seems a little bit more manageable, but he wouldn't have made it through regular preschool without triggering some really big red flags because his symptoms are more obvious at a younger age. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Well, no, you look at me sometimes and like, I don't know if I start talking, you, you're, you're like ready to jump in and take over what I, you know, cause you have something to say, but it, um, then when you're done saying something, you look at me and I'm like, I don't, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm looking don't, for your response, co-host. I'm trying, well, I'm, <laughs> but it's hard because sometimes you'll talk to a degree that it's like, you know, it's hard to figure out what to comment on first. I mean, that's fair. I've been... I look, I obsess over this at this point. This is pretty much all I spend my waking time doing because I've spent 20 years studying the brain. I've spent 20 years studying physical trauma in the body, neurological expression of those things, you know, injury rehabilitation. I've been doing this for a long time. And then to add in this layer of like neurodevelopmental conditions or I mean, they're basically just saying, yeah, your your son's brain didn't develop typically and you know this started with researching things for you as soon as we really started looking at ADHD so I mean I've been on this track now for a few years trying to understand how all these pieces go together so I mean it's fair I I can definitely you know get carried away also but it's because some of these pieces just don't fit for me what do you mean I understand that both your evaluation and his evaluation had the same thing in common and they were looking for neurological deficits in 
specific relationship to um, how you process social situations, emotional situations, your ability to maintain a relationship. Were these um, differences present from childhood? That is consistent. But what's really inconsistent for me is that it doesn't by any means match the people that I know you and Declan to be. And and where I'm really struggling is especially the emotional piece of it because you go and I've read all the I've I've read website after website and there's a lot of great information out there. But even the doctor said it to us on Wednesday. She says, well, he's not recognizing his own emotions, so he can't recognize your emotions. And I call BS. I think it's crap. And I know for a fact he is and responding just not in front of her or not in most of those situations. But it doesn't I don't believe I do understand the research to say that they the research believes that there's no emotional processing happening. Okay. I I mean, I mean, obviously, I, I know that he expresses emotion and I think he understands our emotion to a degree. I think he, you know, it's sort of like when you're, if you're sick or you're not feeling well and your dog kind of comes up to you, mm-hmm. it might lick you or whatever, if, like you're not feeling well. I'm not trying to compare our son to a dog, but I'm just saying no, as far he, as like something that's that. a very obvious emotional uh, thing, like he'll come up and there's times when he'll walk up and just want to give you a kiss or like he'll touch your face mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and so I think that's an obvious uh, expression of, of some deep, heartfelt emotion that he just doesn't he may not understand it but I think he definitely feels it I think he feels it I don't think he knows how to express it and one of the things I'm learning because I'm I'm spending a lot of time studying emotion too because it seems to be the biggest place where I have a disagreement with neurodiversity is in relationship to emotions what I know from you is that you absolutely feel your emotions you feel them arguably deeper than most people I know I'm like um I'm like Spock (laughs) well you know what it's interesting you bring that up because Spock is the first representation of autism in popular tv did you know that he's supposed to be autistic Uh uh-huh really yep he is the and then modern day would be um Jim Parsons character in um the show we used to watch before she cut all of her hair off. Big Bang Theory. Thank you. That's it. Gang Bang Theory. <laughs> well, my favorite. Um, yes. So those, you know, but they were very public about his character being autistic. But actually, the entire Vulcan race is supposed were they, to. Were they public about it? Yeah, they were public about it. Is Jim Parsons autistic? I don't think I don't know about that. Okay. I don't know. I was going to say that'd be interesting. But if his they character had an autistic was person playing autistic character. I mean, it, it'd be worth looking up, but but Spock definitely was supposed to represent autism and that very, very deep. But think about it. Think of the structure of Spock, right? Deeply logical. Right. But also deeply emotional. Right. That fits. Yeah. I mean, I guess I never really thought it's funny because I just watched that when I say the new Star Trek. I mean, the one that came out in like 2009 oh, those are my favorites. or whatever. <laughs> um, With Zachary Quinto and... And... Uh, Chris Pine. And Chris Pine, yeah, those are my favorites. Yeah, I was just not to go off on a tangent. I just love Eric Bana's character in that because mm-hmm. he does that whole thing where the the captain of the ship in the, the the second time he's like you know he's blown up like a bunch of uh, the the ships um, from the Federation and then uh, 
like the captain's names. He's like, I'm Christopher Pike. And he's like, hi, Christopher. I'm Nero. <laughs> <laughs> when he says that, it's so casual. It's so funny. Anyway. But yeah, no, I, I totally, I guess I can totally see that. He's supposed to be autistic. Yes. And I've seen it in, I mean, I have, there are MDs out there working really hard to teach other MDs how to recognize, especially the co-diagnosis of both. And they'll use, sometimes they'll use this reference point of Spock in relationship to, um, what what is his character's name? Jim Parsons' name. Oh, character. Oh, from Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. I don't. Um, I don't know anymore. Shel- isn't it Sheldon? Yes. Okay. So there's the comparison, right? And they're they're doing it to try and teach that there's the visual spectrum also in the way of their personalities, but but see, Sheldon doesn't represent emotion nearly the same way that Spock does. I mean, Spock was deeply autistic. I mean, sorry, deeply emotional. See, many perceive autistic traits. But I actually don't. I think that the logic is hmm. correct. I've did, I, Temple Grandin does spend a lot of time talking about how an autism brain does route through logic and it makes a lot of sense. And it actually becomes a really big indicator when you're looking. Ah, see, it says he's not autistic because his suppression of emotion is not a genetic characteristic but a cultural one. No, that's that's what it says. Yes, but who wrote that? Because that's someone. Who someone on Reddit. Th- yeah. They're an expert. I'm sure they are. They must be an the expert. The whole culture is meant to be autistic. So whoever did that didn't do their research. I'm just saying. Okay. Well, we'll believe so and so, but I'm saying. What? I'm just. I'm just reading. Hey, this is the internet. Okay. <laughs> I googled is Spock autistic. The first thing that comes up is the answer. Uh, actually, that is the actual. It's the, that's a fact. <laughs> right. I don't know if you know this. Let's believe everything on Reddit. This is the way that I'm telling you. It's it says. I deeply right disagree. Here at the top. I'm sorry, but I I deeply disagree. The neuroscience would show you that a, a brain that is wired through logic absolutely has an emotional core. It just it just processes differently. It's not necessarily intuitively updated. So the way it's processed is just with really big, deep feelings. And, and because of the way that it presents, it feels like more simple emotions like anger or sadness. It's like they don't get all complex with these um, varying degrees of, of emotions that you'll see people kind of use. This, it's very different. I mean, and I, and I look at that and I see that in Declan. So when he knows that I'm sad or he knows that I'm really, you know, mad. Like he responds to those things. So uh, he sh- he might not have done it in front of the doctor, but he absolutely will do that to me. I I remember one point breaking down crying over something I can't remember now, and he literally stopped what he was doing and walked over and hugged me and kissed me on the cheek. Like Did you break a nail? <laughs> I'm a massage therapist. I don't have nails. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It was something over us, I'm sure. But you stubbed your toe. I mean, no, but something over us, meaning me and you. Yeah. Oh. It was something last year, but okay. But I know he's capable, and I watched you handle emotions the same way. You have very big feelings, and they're just as I'm valid. I'm a big boy. <laughs> okay. What? I'm trying to defend you, and you're like, ah, oh, blah blah blah. What? I'm here for comic relief. <laughs> then be funny. Oh, thanks. I thought I was being funny dead silence <laughs> that was awesome that was awesome 
You're just destroying my point. Sorry. Go ahead. Continue. We're all eyes. Ears. All eyes. <laughs> We're all ears is what I meant. Oh, my gosh. Now I forgot what I was saying, but I just think that we differ on on the emotional processing piece. You were talking about Declan uh, coming to you and you were crying about something that happened between us. Yeah, it was just an example. My point is just logical and deeply emotional. I think those things are true. I just don't think it's expressed in a way that we understand. I don't think the emotions come through typical channels. And so we do that thing that we've always done is we just assume they don't exist. I mean, it's like when the doctor said, oh, babies don't feel pain. Okay, well, just because the, the infant can't tell you that they're in pain doesn't mean they don't feel it. Like we tend to make those types of assumptions that are incomplete that are completely wrong and i think in this case Wait, who said babies can't feel pain oh the doctors used to say that babies what? don't feel pain absolutely i've never heard this before yes you go back and and even your mom talked about it you know when babies were born and they bring that bright light out on them and put their on a cold tray and you know, all these different things that used to happen because they didn't think babies felt pain i i can't imagine i've Look is that up. is right that there by the internet Oh, well, I know. I'm still looking at Spock having Asperger's. Well, <laughs> move on to the next thing. It's no different than what in... Um, what am I looking up? Do babies feel pain or babies. when did we realize babies... Wait, wait, wait. If you just type do babies, the first thing that comes up is poop in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Feel pain. Feel pain. Do babies feel pain? Babies feel pain like adults. The first thing that came up, University of Oxford, whatever that is. Yeah, but look at the They're date. experts. 2015, six years ago. They're, right. They're just now proving it. The mystery of how babies experience pain. Yeah. See, the latest research says yes, which means they're backing out of the first research that said no. Yeah. That's, I mean, I wouldn't, I would, I don't understand. You know, it's like I, I read that. Um, see, look, read right there. Until as recently as the 1980s, researchers, click on that. Okay. That's about to prove my point right there. But my point is, I wouldn't have ever thought the babies didn't feel pain. I know. I wouldn't have either. But, you know. They're that's why I think call them babies. Because they're little whiners. <laughs> they cry will. about everything. Okay. Did you know that in neuroscience for a very long time, there's um, a very significant type of cell called a glial cell? cell and yeah. I, I know all about the glial cells. For a long time. Tell you all about it right now. Just give me one second. <laughs> G-L-I-A-L. You spelled it wrong. Whatever. <laughs> the glia, also called glial cells, or neuro, neuro, neuroglia, are non-neuronal, is that right? Cells in the central nervous system, brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system that do not produce electrical impulses. They maintain, hom maintain homeostasis for myelin, in the peripheral nervous system and provide support and protection for neurons. I just pulled that from my brain, uh -huh. not from the internet that I'm looking <laughs> at right now. But if you really research the history of our understanding of glial cells, you would see that for a very long time, because they didn't produce electricity, the neuroscientists believed that they didn't do anything. Hmm. They were uh -huh. because they're it's something they they couldn't measure because of the of the electrical right. Uh, they didn't Impulses know what they were looking at. They're not giving off? Right. Turns out the glial cells are actually some of the most important brain cells of the entire brain. In fact, um, in one of the books I was reading, it talks about um, Einstein's brain. 
And when he died, someone took it. One of the scientists took his brain and the scientists held on to his brain and they were like, oh, I'm not giving this up. Like, and they were really controlling about who they would give slices of their brain to. And they had to really trust the scientist or the researcher in order to do that. Oh, and one pictures of a sliced up brain. I know. Well, sorry. It's not a great visual. But the point is that one of the only things that was really remarkably, remarkably different between Einstein's brain and anyone else's brain was the quantity of glial cells. But at the time, they didn't think glial cells did anything. So they were like, well, we don't understand this. He has far more than anyone else, but uh, it's useless because these things don't do anything. It's like the, what are those things that people get removed? The tonsils? Um, or adenoids and appendix. I mean, all of Yeah, all these things. things, they were like, eh, we don't need it. It's like in my car the other day, this thing fell out. Mm-hmm. This, little, this little thing, and I can't find out where it goes. My car still works. So, oh, I, so you must not need it. So it must it must it, not be important. It, it must be like the appendix of my car. <laughs> yeah, just write it off because we don't understand it. But I can't because I can't find out where it goes. Seriously, no, I'm, I'm like but, a little nervous about it. Oh well, and you should be because I'm sure it's important somewhere. We just don't have the the reference point to understand it. But that's what I'm making. That's exactly the point I'm making about emotional processing and neurodiversity. And, and I'm not quite sure where I'm going with my theories yet. But I just don't feel that they've gotten this right. I feel like it's another epidemic of the the glial cell research. I mean, it's just, they're just behind. They can't explain it yet. And so they're telling us it doesn't happen. And I think they're wrong. So there it is. I said it. I think they're absolutely wrong. Can I read this first part here of this sure. uh, thing? Because we're talking about babies feeling pain. I'm interested now. Okay. Uh, they say that the infant's brain is much more developed than I was expecting, says whoever this person is. In a first, researchers at Oxford University, is that a real school, have watched infants as young as a day old as their brains process a light prodding of their feet. The results confirm that, yes, babies do indeed feel pain and that they process it similarly to adults. And that's what I'm saying. Like, they, it, that'd be like, oh, if we, if, if we try to cut off a baby's finger, will it grow back? It's like I would always just assume the answer would be no. But that's why they don't, anest- and I don't know this to be true because we didn't do this, but I understand that they don't anesthetize circumcision the penis i know that i knew we were going to get to the penis thing because they but read the next sentence keep going take oh wait where was i until Uh, as recently until as recently as the 1980s researchers assumed newborns did not have fully developed pain receptors and believed that any responses babies had to pokes or pricks were merely muscular reactions which is like okay but new research published tuesday morning changes that this was 2015 from 2015 there's my point what we don't understand, so we write I off. Th- I mean, that's, yeah, that's true. I mean, I'll go back to my notes. I'll read you exactly what the doctor... People didn't think babies fall. That blows my mind. Yep. And, no. and Spock was autistic. Like, my mind, pow, pow, was just blowing up left <laughs> and right. <laughs> that's what I do. I blow up minds. Um, Speak into the microphone. Any minute now. <laughs> I can't find it. It was towards the end of the meeting. Full bedtime routine. See, this is what happens when doesn't you... Doesn't recognize his emotions. Okay. Here it is. So he has, she said, to be on the lookout for anxiety, he'll be clingy, he'll be overstimulated, he'll have sensory issues, and he'll have problems with transitions, which, you know, so obviously he'll, his behavior will be evident that he's anxious because something will change in his ability to express himself, but yet he doesn't recognize his emotions. The fact that those two things came out in the same breath of hers, like I really struggled with it because I'm sitting there, you're going, because he's feeling anxious, 
he's making all of these behavioral changes, but he doesn't recognize his own emotions. That doesn't make any sense to me. Wait, what? What happens when you feel anxious? What do you do differently? I touch myself. <laughs> Let's hope you're talking about your wrist. <laughs> I didn't say where. I know you didn't. So tell me when you're feel. I'm I'm literally legitimately from my heart asking you this question because I don't fully understand what anxiety feels like. So when you're feeling anxious, I mean, I have my theories just from watching you, but uh-huh. when you're feeling anxious, I take pills. Okay, before you had pills to take, like even then, what do you what do you do? How does your behavior change? Movement helps a lot. I mean, really like getting No, but back I'm, up. I'm when saying, you're starting to feel that you're anxious, what is it? It's not it's not it's I don't know, it's like how do you explain the feeling of going to the bathroom or something? Well, like, I'm sure it's it's, it's going to feel a little if automatic, no else, but if no one else went to the bathroom. Like you couldn't explain what it felt like to go to the bathroom. Like if you or like, what's it feel like to have to go to pee? No, but that's like, you a, feel pressure. Okay, but that's what maybe, I'm asking. I'm saying, well, okay, what do you? How do you recognize that you're feeling anxious in order to know that you need to go take your pills? Because I feel anxious. What does that feel like? Anxiety. Like, like no, I'm saying like I don't know how to explain it. Like you're you you're maybe your heart starts racing sometimes, and you. Um, you feel overly stimulated, you know, in some cases, like your body, you gotta, you feel like you gotta, you gotta move, you know, cause it's like it, a lot of it is that fight or flight. Okay. <clears throat> so, right. you know, and, and instead of, but it's not, it's usually not flight. It's sorry. Um, what is it? Fight, flight or freeze. So it's not f- in fornicate according to you. And the new one is fib. Oh God! There's a new one. It's fib. wait. Did we talk about this last time? We didn't talk about it. No, I sent. I thought you the we article. talked about oh the fibbing thing. Yeah, fibbing is new. They're adding fibbing, and I totally agree with it. But but anyway, I'm gonna blow your head off. And I'm like, I like your hair. <laughs> yes, I do think Let lying is a social defense mechanism to you know fight or flight response. I agree with you. So what I'm hearing you say is the biological response. There's physical response. There's a physical thing that happens that it's hard to it's hard to explain true so can i break that down for you you're making me anxious just thinking about it i know it. i can try and make and me sorry. get there there are 11 different organs or parts of the body that respond to any thought that triggers a fight or flight response 11 okay yeah so those do produce different neurochemicals different enzymes digestive gastric juices all change and not like you know you'd really know that but you'd know a change in your stomach the blood in your stomach that's there to help digestion actually leaves your stomach and is pushed to your muscles to your muscular system so you have energy to run away from tiger or fight you know rambo whoever's coming at you um your immune system changes what it's producing and goes on the attack your um the blood in your in your body obviously it's shifting all of its resources to your muscles but it your heart rate starts moving faster your lungs start breathing more shallow you there's hormones that um put your body into fight or flight so the adrenaline is going to push so why'd you ask me what how it felt if you know the I answer i know the biochemical but i don't know what it feels like i mean it feels like all those things happening at once <laughs> Which means that though you are in touch with your emotions because you can tell that you're getting flustered and you're getting frustrated. It's that's why I just feel like oh he he can't recognize his emotions. I'm like that's I'm sorry, but it's we a, don't see emotion the same way you see emotion. Well, and that's I think that's fair. what it is. I agree with that statement. 
That's not what I'm saying. It's just like for, you know, if if someone dies, like I don't, um, it takes time. There's a processing time for me. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not like, like not to rag on your sister, but like, I you know, she, I, I've just, I've seen her, she's um, stubbed her toe or something like that and immediately like gets a like emotional response out of it and i'm like whoa that's so something i'm not like i would stub my toe and be like ah fuck and wouldn't feel emotional about it right so it's like i and so like in that way i i just don't identify with feeling emotion so immediately when something happens like sometimes people um you know some they'll hear news and they're like immediately crying right and i'm just i've never been like that like to me it's always taken up and then i'll feel it like heavy right. and and deeply and then be you know very emotional about it like for a very point. long time well i mean maybe it depends yeah no i mean it's i mean i've gotten sick like when my grandma passed away when i was a teenager right like i got to the point where i was in the bathroom throwing up because i was so emotional and like mm-hmm. was crying that much and then right. just like slept in the bathroom <laughs> over uh, well and that's all night. but that's exactly that's proving my point i do believe that one of the things that the the medical research community is behind on is really clarifying the emotional processing process of neurodiversity. That's the only point I'm trying to make. I think they're behind. I don't feel like they're fairly representing what's really happening. And as a result, this is why it's important to me as a result, the emotional development and the emotional opportunities that I believe that we have to engage with each other across. It doesn't even matter at this point. I neurotypical neurodiverse doesn't matter. The emotional opportunities that we have to engage are being overlooked. I, I, one of the things that I refuse to do is to believe that my son's incapable of expressing himself emotionally and recognizing him, his emotions. Now, granted, I'll say they probably aren't the same as me and I don't need them to be the same as me. Even if he wasn't neurodiverse, they would always be different because each person processes things through their own filters and that's to be expected. But I will continue to on a regular basis develop him emotionally because I personally believe his brain and his heart are far more connected even more so than me as a neurotypical. I I believe my mind can be hijacked as a reward and consequence central nervous system. I fully believe I can be mind tricked into doing things I don't want to do on reward and consequence. But trying to convince either one of you to do something you don't want to do is impossible, which tells me you're far more connected to your heart and to your emotional center point than, than other people. And yet you're not recognized for it at all, which is where I'm saying the big miss is. The big misses? <laughs> I'll need a new, a fat ass. <laughs> I'll need the big a new catchphrase for that. I think it's a big gap. I think it's a big it overlook. It is a huge gap. And I think it's wrong. So what I believe is that neurodiversity is not wired around emotions i think it's wired straight through emotions now they may not be you know expressed the same or even presented in you know 40 different emotions it may be only presented in four or five for simplicity and that's fine it still registers that an interest-based central nervous system which is what it's called neurodiversity is an interest-based central nervous system 
I believe it's interest-based because you're only going to do the things you're interested in, which means your heart and your mind are both connected on something you're interested in and nothing else matters. That's how you get in the zone. Right. Is that a good place to segue to the end of the show? (laughs) So you can get in the zone to start editing? I got to get in the zone and start editing. (laughs) It's a fair point. Yes. Uh, That is my theory. That is my big struggle with today's, um, with the revelation of his diagnosis. I think I was just upset to hear how dismissive it was of what I believe is a core part of his personality. And I felt the same anger and distrust when we received your evaluation that it didn't represent the people I know you to be. Now, I think everything in both reports is accurate. Okay. I just don't think either report is complete. Incomplete reports. Would that be the name of the uh, episode? (laughs) I don't know. Or will it be called, is Spock autistic? (laughs) I think it should be called a Spock autistic. Okay. That's a good one. That's a, it's a good way to get people suck, suck them in to listening. (laughs) Um, So this has been another episode of you don't sound autistic. I am Blake. And I'm Michelle. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back. 